0: Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood. I'm Andrea Catherwood. Welcome to the Rathbone's Look Forward series, where I'm speaking to some of the great thinkers, writers and journalists of our time, looking at the future of our changing world. And today we're looking at the future of the countryside. My guest today is Dieter Helm. He's an Oxford economist and chair of the Natural Capital Committee, advisors to the governments on the states of English forests, water, species and many more. Dieter's latest book, The Green and Prosperous Land, A Blueprint for Rescuing the Countryside, is a practical 25-year plan to put Britain on a greener path. Dieter, your, your plan is for positive change. But the stories that we hear on the news are very often fairly negative ones about ecosystems, you know, the threat of extinction. Um, pesticides air pollution so before we go on to look at the future i'd actually like to take you back a little bit and just ask you how did we get to this position
1: well we've got probably the best documented declines of uh, natural capital and natural environment in the world britain's produced great naturalists who've just plotted the decline of each species and it's been pretty continuous and actually the causes of the declines there are there are many but uh, some are really big ticket causes and clearly the intensification of agriculture You know, farming is 70% of our land, has been a major part. And and farming's basically, you know, a battle against nature. You know, if you're a farmer, what you want to do is kill everything except the crop you're trying to grow. And if you're trying to look after the environment, that's not particularly helpful. So there's plenty of chance to turn this around, but it's been a pretty disappointing and depressing story despite all
0: the efforts that people have put in to try to do something about it so far. The idea of taking an, an economic approach to protecting our green spaces is quite an interesting one. It might seem a bit cold to some people but as you say in your book it is it's quite appealing to people's value of nature to see it in a more maybe in a more economic way. I mean just looking at it spiritually doesn't seem to have works terribly well. Do we need to put an economic value on it to maybe take things forward?
1: Well, I think that one of the reasons why, you know, these wonderful people in the environmental movement, really good people trying hard to do the right things, have had so little impact is because they're basically against the economy. What they want to do is stop the world and get off. And in particular, they want to end economic growth. Now, my take on this is that's wrong for two reasons. First of all, it's just hopelessly impractical. Nobody's going to vote for that. If you stand up and say, in our democracy, look, we're going to make your life a lot worse than it currently is in terms of your standard of living. And you say, but it's for the greater good of the environment. You know, history shows that doesn't work. But the second reason is that actually investing in our environment, turning this story around, is really good for economic growth. These are really big economic opportunities. And do you think we just don't tell that story enough? Oh, I think it's, it's partly that, that, you know, we need the environmental movement to get behind good policy and talk to the Treasury rather than talk to themselves. That's part of it. But it's also that there are many vested interests behind the sorts of things that are doing a lot of damage now, which are capturing what we would call economic rents. They're just lobbying for their subsidies and their returns. And the net result of this is that we're all collectively worse off. So we can do much better economically and have a green environment. And I genuinely believe that's the way we should approach this problem.
0: Oh, I would like to uh, unpick that a little bit more. Is it, in your book, you talk about the prize, you know, what nature could look like by the middle of this century. And, and you say that it's achievable, and it would also be good for the economy. Can you just paint me a picture of, of, of what it could be? Yeah. So,
1: so this is one of those kind of imagine moments. Mm-hmm. Stand back, think about the natural environment, and imagine what it could look like. So, and this is talking mid-century, in more than 25 years' time, so it's a reasonable time period. Well, you know, if you look around, first of all, we could have an agriculture which is not polluting our rivers and polluting our water systems. We could have rivers in pretty good shape. We could use trees, carbon sequestration mechanisms, etc., to do a lot of the things we're doing with hard concrete. You know, if you go out in the city and, you know, 80% of people plus live in urban environments, why don't we have trees down the street? They're much more efficient at cleaning up air pollution than uh, uh, trying to do physical constraints on what's going on. So the streets could be cleaner. Why shouldn't children be within 500 yards of a green space? Wouldn't mental health be better? Wouldn't physical health be better? And why around the coast can't we have a green belt all the way around? We're going to have a footpath all the way around. Why can't our beaches be clean? These aren't phenomenally extravagant utopian asks. These are practical things which Everybody understands in their own locality. What I've tried to do is put it together into a total package and say, look, this is the prize you could have. And by the way, it's economically sensible for you to do it.
0: Do you see real government hunger for enabling positive change? I know that uh, you're part of the, uh, in fact you chair the, the uh, Natural Capital Committee that advises governments, uh, the government on the state of English forests and water and species and things like that. So you're obviously talking to the government, but what what kind of response do you get? Well. You know, if you just roll back a bit, uh, in
1: 2011, the government of the time had the first white paper on what they were going to do about the natural environment. And they set out this objective, which is easy for politicians to say, you know, we're going to leave the the natural environment in a better state for the next generation. And, you know, it was like all the other platitudes in the past. It had every potential to just go the way of the past and would just carry on doing the damage. But uh, David Cameron asked me to chair the Natural Capital Committee... And he said, you know, think about this, work out how we could do it. And, you know, I thought once, and I thought, this is just like, yes, minister, you know, committee to do this stuff, nothing's going to happen. But he said, no, no, go for it. And I, I'm not political at all, but I thought, OK, we'll give it a try. And we proposed a 25-year plan for Britain to improve its natural environment. In other words, how you would do this. And five secretaries of state later, Michael Gove has actually uh, produced that paper to set out the 25-year plan and we're about to have legislation to put it into a statutory legal objective to achieve these outcomes. So, you know, of course one's always getting disappointed but you've got to try and this time around it feels genuinely different. We might actually get this on the statutes, in law, and then we might actually achieve something.
0: I wonder, politically, do you feel that it requires the parties to maybe go above the uh, the kind of classic two-party system that we have? Because the four-year political cycle doesn't help. I mean, you say you've had it's already been thwarted, and actually that's with the same, broadly the same government in place. Perhaps the environment is actually too important to be left to to our two-party political system.
1: Well, there are a lot of people who think that um, they like democracy, but they don't like it when democracy doesn't agree with the objectives they hold dear. Uh, I'm a Democrat. I'm uh, half East German by origin, so I have an appreciation of what the opposite of democracy looks like. And by the way, it's awful for the environment. So we live in a democracy. So what I did when I was chairing the Natural Capital Committee was I went to great lengths to get all three of the then-major political parties in in 2015 to put in their manifestos that they would would adopt and implement the 25-year plan that our committee came up with. And you know what? They all did. This is cross-party. And indeed, in, in one sense, what's going on in our democracy at the moment is Each party is fighting for green votes because there isn't enough other votes to get them a majority. So you see that with the Conservatives pitching very hard through Michael Gove and others to be seen to be green. You see Labour doing the same thing. The Liberal Democrats have all been doing it. And to an extent they're quite successful because there's only one green MP all the green bits are being fought for by the other parties. So that's why I think this is a good moment. And actually, I think democracy is exactly the way we should drive this through, not uh, to try to find some extra parliamentary way of achieving objectives, which we haven't persuaded the bulk of our fellow citizens to sign up to.
0: And if we don't grab these opportunities that you've laid out, where, where does that leave us if we don't actually make the changes that are necessary? Well, the the scale of the challenge to the environment now is probably bigger
1: than it's been, uh, well, since the Industrial Revolution. We are going to have 10 million more people. We're going to have a lot more houses... Uh, you know, 300,000 a year, that's 3 million every decade, probably 6 million more houses. We're going to have new motorways, new rail systems, HS2, new energy systems, new industrialization of the landscape. So the challenge is just enormous. And what all this means, too, is we're going to have a lot of consumption as well. Now, if we don't do it, if you walk out in the street and have a look at You can see it out there. You can see the mental health and particularly the physical health problems. You can see the obesity. You can see what's happening to our children uh, in in urban areas. You can see the pollution in the river. It's just going to get bigger and bigger. And my point is that if you think that damaging the environment has been bad for economic growth so far, you ain't seen nothing yet to what's coming. So the other side of this argument is you really don't have much choice but to really address the environment now, because other Otherwise, we really will undermine our prosperity and people will genuinely, genuinely be poorer. So there's the kind of carrot of this. There's a fantastic opportunity out there, but there's a stick. If you don't do it, we're really going to suffer.
0: And just tell me in broad brush terms, then, what are the major areas that we need to address in order to prevent the, the kind of catastrophe that you're talking about?
1: Well, you know, the curious thing about it is that there's nothing new here. We know what air quality is doing. We know how many people are dying each year. We know how many people's lives are shortened and uh, how much ill health is caused. We know how much obesity there is. We know the mental health problems. We know the science about access to green and mental health. We know how much we're paying to clean up the mess that's going into our rivers to provide our water supplies. We know what flood defence is costing And so on and so forth. These are all extremely well known. And what I can tell you is, if we don't address these problems, these numbers will just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's not the rich who are going to suffer. It's the poor that suffer first from environmental degradation. So
0: it'll make our society more unequal as well. OK, let's go through and unpack some of the issues that you've talked about. And I'd like to start now with farming. You mentioned before that over 70% of UK land is managed by farmers. And I know that you've said that uh, modern British agriculture is bad for the environment, bad for farmers and bad for taxpayers. Can you explain a little bit more about that to me? When most people confront
1: the crazy economics of farming, it's so uh, bizarre that people find it quite difficult to uh, come to terms with it and believe it's actually true. But these are the facts. Farming produces... £9 billion pounds worth of output. That's the entirety of British farming. Okay? And that £9 billion for, uh, uh, output is 0.7% of GDP. So, being absolutely blunt, this is an insignificant industry in economic terms. Of that £9 billion pounds of output, we pay £3 billion in direct subsidies, most of which is paid to farmers per hectare for owning the land. You have to let that register. A third of the total value of the output is paid to own the land. Of course, you have to farm it, but basically it's a payment for owning land. which just inflates land prices. Then on top of that, farming is essentially exempted from inheritance tax, business rates, uh, it has uh, subsidised red diesel fuels, and it pays for virtually none of the pollution it causes to our rivers, to our air, uh, etc. So if you add all this lot up, Bizarrely, it turns out that the net value of farming output in the system we have today is pretty close to zero. It may be a bit positive. Some people think it's negative. Now, the question you have to ask yourself then is, how could it possibly be that we get so little for our money when we spend so much on this sector more proportionally than any other sector of the economy? That's the reality of the crazy economics of farming, and that's why there's such a fantastic scope to do better.
0: And yet 70% of UK land is managed by farmers. So, you, know, you drive up the motorway and there's farms on either side of the road as soon as you leave the conurbations. You seem to be making a quite a good case for actually not having farms in this country. How do we feed ourselves? Oh, 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 on the contrary, we want that land farmed but we can have
1: much better farming and much better outputs for our economy for putting so much money in. So the, the question is, why should we subsidise this and what should we be buying with our £3 billion? And the answer to that question, which is actually quite a consensus, even the NFU agrees, the Farmers Union agrees with this now, we should be paying that £3 billion for public goods, things that the farmers wouldn't otherwise produce, which we value and we want. And part of that is the environment that that 70% of our land area is, and less pollution, less costs, etc. And I argue not only will that be good for us and our society and our economy, and we'd all be more prosperous as a result, it would be a green and prosperous land, but actually the farmers themselves would be broadly better off as a result. Because the sad thing is, they don't make much money. The average farmer is 60. This is an ageing industry. There isn't much entry for young people. This isn't an industry where for farmers it's going very well. It's actually ended up being bad for them as well as bad for the environment.
0: So is there a way of using this three billion that you talk about to make it a much greener um, and more pleasant uh, industry? Well, it'd be pretty hard to make it less green
1: than what we're currently doing, OK? And so the question is, so if you say to farmers, look, you've got three billion here you can have, so it's the same amount of money as they're currently getting, what, you'd, what we'd like you to do is tell us, you know about your land, what you could do which would produce those public goods. And let's think what they are. Use less uh, pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, use less nitrogen, look after the carbon in the soil, uh, preserve that that soil, sequestrate more carbon with, with trees, etc., manage the river sides better and the drainage, um, uh, give access to the public, to your land, and in the uplands... Which are special and very uneconomic from a farming point of view, you know that value that, that upland landscape is precious to lots of people, and there are lots of things you can do from the really small scale, like you know uh, traditionally laying hedges uh, and not cutting them at the wrong times of the year right through to you know looking to encourage uh,
0: wildflowers and things of that ilk so lots of things they can do and what about toxic pesticides I and mean, we 're always hearing about how many fewer insects there are than there were you know even ten years ago is that? A real issue that we can solve by using less pesticides? Insects are a really
1: interesting example. They're what most people don't note, notice, or actually are quite pleased not to have them in the house or whatever. Okay? But we've wiped out between 70 and 80% of all insects. So when I was a kid, if you went around in a car, you stopped regularly to clean the insects off your windscreen in, uh, uh, from April onwards, really. Now... I don't ever have to do that. They're gone. Now people say, oh well, that's just insects. You know, what's that got to do with me? If you take the insects out of the ecological systems, what's going to pollinate your crops? What's going to clean up a lot of the waste, etc. we have? Insects are perhaps the most important part of our biological systems. And we basically wipe them out and we wipe them out in large measure because of the agricultural practices we pursued. And that is, in the end, bad for farmers. It's terrible for the environment. And, you know, when I go and look in the, in the spring to see whether the spotted fly catchers have come back to my garden or I'm looking out now to see the swallows, there are a lot less of them. There are no insects to eat. They knock those out of
0: the system. Is it easy to change this system? I mean, is it easy for farmers to not use pesticides anymore, to use something that's more environmentally friendly, and could we then see our insects coming back?
1: Well, it's a matter of degree. Okay. nobody thinks that you should, um, you know, tomorrow morning suddenly have no pesticides or no fertilizers. That would be crazy. We're talking about changing the practices and changing them quite a bit, but at the margin to start with. And the answer to this question is, well, we are doing it. You know, we have an agricultural act going through Parliament which is going to shift us from paying people to own land to paying people to do sensible things. And there are great examples across British agriculture of farmers who are doing the right thing extremely well and uh, with the proper direction of subsidies, profitably too. So this is perfectly practical. This isn't kind of some, some sort of you know naive utopia. This is doable, and we're doing it now. My point is, we've got a hell of a lot of ground to make up, and we need to get on with it a lot faster than we're currently uh, pottering around with.
0: When you when you talk to farmers, when you talk to the National Farmers Union, do you think that there is a desire to actually get on board with this? Because it really needs to be done, from what you're saying, pretty. Quickly, And it could be rolled out much more quickly if the farmers were on board.
1: Yeah, so the the thing about farmers is there are, like any industry, but particularly farming, there are a huge number of different views, different interests and different types of farmers. So the world is completely different from a Peterborough large agricultural holding producing cereals en masse, and a small hill farmer with a couple of hundred acres uh, in the uplands. So there's a lot of difference of view as to what their economic interests are. My take is that even the NFU, which usually defends each and every chemical against a prohibition, so it's defending neonics at the moment, it's defending glyphosate, it's defending all these uh, substances until they get banned, You know, their their, their approach is the opposite of the precautionary principle. You know, prove it's really bad and don't stop us using it till we get there. Although there's a lot of that, behind the scenes, the leadership of the NFU has changed. It's a lot more forward-looking. They understand what public goods is about. And I don't find any representative of the farming industry not at least accepting they've got to do more for the environment and they've got to do more to justify their public subsidy. But do we wait for a body of people who've got a vested interest in the existing subsidies, which are capitalised on the land prices? Of course we can't wait. And that's what the Agricultural Act's about. And this is one of the big Agricultural Acts. 1947, dig for victory after the war. 72-73, joining the CAP. It's 2019, which will be the third one of those big changes, and they know it.
0: Now, how confident are you that that's going to go through and that it's, it's got teeth to do enough?
1: Do you know what's going to happen about Brexit is my obvious answer. But, but I think that the momentum is almost unstoppable on the agricultural bill and the environment bill. And the other side of this, and I've spent time as a, uh, a special advisor to one of the commissioners in Europe uh, seven or eight years ago, this is where Europe's going. It's slower because there are these Eastern European interests of the large industrialization of farming in the former Soviet Union countries. Uh, there's a huge block of French farmers that oppose movement. But the general drift is to green agricultural subsidies. So I think this isn't a question of whether, it's a question of when. And my view is that waiting too long. It's just economically silly. It's just wasting money to hang about. The gains, the low-hanging fruit are just so obvious.
0: I'd like to ask you a little bit about rewilding, which is where you restore an area of land to its natural uncultivated state and and often reintroduce wild species that might have been driven out. And I'd like to ask you about, you know, when we're talking about prioritising different areas, how important is that area? Uh, Does it work? Okay,
1: so there is no wild. Every aspect of our natural environment in this country, indeed the entire globe, has been modified by human beings. Even the Arctic has been modified by human beings. And so there isn't some kind of primeval nature that we can go back to if only we took human beings out of the picture. And it's a complete mistake to think that we should be pursuing nature without people. The point of nature is to deliver benefits to us, the people. Nature doesn't give a damn. Nature doesn't care whether it's extinct or not. It just does what it does, and uh, and this is very important. So when people talk about rewilding, quite a lot of it is what I would call kind of naive romanticism about, you know, the primitive... Period. Go back to the world of the savage, but then get rid of the savage as well. Rousseau might have liked that particular line of argument. Okay? It's just not up for there. So it's about how we manage the natural environment. Now, it's completely a separate argument to have managed neglect. Okay, where we say we're not going to intervene anymore. In for example, lapses. ancient
0: woodland where you let trees fall well, down so that we can they, you they you can leave have those. Lots alone, of but, but you might even leave
1: upland farms to right. go back because they're just so uneconomic in some cases, OK? The worst form of rewilding is creating new zoos. And essentially, the, the, the two big examples that we have in Britain, although they have some fantastic biodiversity effects, are essentially the attempts to create a zoo, put a fence around it, keep people out or charge them for coming in, and then have this kind of barrier between this primitive world like a kind of safari park and the outside. And this is where perhaps you introduce species
0: that used to live there. You
1: know, we'll put the wolf back, you know, we'll have the lynx. I mean, I'm not against that, and the beaver's a different case because it really does improve quite a lot of river performance. But the idea that you solve nature by having more wolves, nature is a complex ecosystem. You know, I'd much be more interested if people thought about how they could recreate a habitat to get back several different species of insect Mm. that, you know, would really make a difference. But, you know, these totem items, they give a lot of pleasure. The red kites have appeared right across Oxfordshire. I see them above my garden. Now, they're absolutely beautiful. They delight me. They make me happy. But that isn't a good environment just because we've got red kites, even if it's better than it was before.
0: I'd like to move on and talk a little bit about cities now. More than 80% of the British population live in in towns and cities, and there's clearly a huge cost that comes from the health consequences of air pollution. You know, when we think about London's air quality, you know, being no better than than Delhi's or Paris or, or Beijing at times even, how do we limit the pollution that's getting into our city air? And how much can we hope to mop up by planting more trees?
1: Well... Air quality is one of the things where you can measure the damage to people's health and the loss of life very directly. And it is quite remarkable it's taken till now for people to get really seriously exercised about this. The actual truth in London is air quality has been getting better for the last decade. So you just think how awful it was a decade ago and how much damage it was doing. So what we want to do is pragmatically, these things must be pragmatic, you know, they must be affordable. Okay? So we want to bear down on the causes of air quality damage. And those are agricultural pollution, ammonia and other agricultural chemicals coming into the mix of London's air and city air and it's really important that it's not just you know diesel vehicles that are
0: doing this but it is transport as well. It is interesting actually that you bring in the idea of of farming again because actually I think most people assume that the air quality in the city is bad because of the things that are in the city not something that's in the countryside. Uh, uh,
1: our worst incidents of pollution in London are caused by air coming up from France uh, and from surrounding areas, much of which is chemical and agricultural pollution. Ammonia is a really big ticket story. It's not just the fertilisers and so on, which are, um, you know, uh, polluting uh, rivers, etc, etc. It's not just the carbon required in producing these things. It's what comes in in the atmosphere too. So we want to look to those causes. And since, you know, the costs of adjusting agriculture is so low because it makes so lo- small an economic contribution. It's really quite cheap to handle that. We should deal with that, OK? The vehicles, that's a classic example in part of really mistaken policy. Why have we got the streets of London clogged up with diesel vehicles? Because someone had the bright idea that this was good for climate change. Right? Well, it is better for climate change to have diesel engines than petrol engines, but nobody thought about the other consequences. So we're bearing down on those things and we can make intelligent, smart cities with new technologies, digitalization, artificial intelligence, much better in handling those things. We can make cycle lanes, we can make it possible to walk. But then we've got to think about the other side. How do we mop up the pollution? There's no way that our major cities are not going to be major causes of pollution for a long time going forward. We've started to clean up the rivers. There isn't the great stink in London anymore. But when it comes to air quality, amongst the cheapest things you can do is to plant trees. And when I say plant trees, I don't mean any trees if you talk to a scientist, they'll tell you that some trees, like the plane trees in St James's Park, for example, are pretty damn good at this, and some trees are, are close to useless. So you need to plant them. So, you know, if you think of a city like Sheffield, what were they doing going around cutting down trees to make it easier for utility cables when these things are major pollution absorbents? So I'm really ambitious... I want to say in a major city that we should have a default position which is every single street should be planted with trees unless there's a good reason not to do it and the green spaces should be preserved. And take London, Greater London, 46% of London is green. If you look at a satellite map... Think what you could do in joining those up, creating corridors, linking people's gardens together, creating those green spaces, stop concreting over school playing fields, give the kids somewhere to go. And you get the air pollution and the health and the mental benefits. You get multiple payoffs for doing this in cities. So let's go for that. And wildlife
0: in cities is really quite interesting. Tell me about the idea of the Green Belt. Now, it was introduced after World War II to stop cities intruding on the countryside. And Clearly, many people think it makes a lot of sense, but they do seem to be forever under threat. Where would you go with them?
1: So the idea of a green belt is to limit urban sprawl and to create the lungs around cities. And these were put in place gradually after the great planning reforms after the Second World War, the 47-48 Planning Act, etc. Now, that's the idea, but the reality is that they've basically been no planning permission areas, And much of what is the Green Belt is anything but green. A lot of it is intensive agriculture. If you go to the east of Oxford, it's some of the least biodiverse land on the planet. And what people say then, therefore, you know, look, it's brown, it's not green. If we built houses on it, it wouldn't make anything worse. Why don't we just use this land for planning? And you know what? For quite a lot of Green Belt, the houses will have more biodiversity than the agricultural land at the moment. That's a measure of how awful the agricultural land is. So the kind of common sense, first line view, which is completely wrong, is that we should just simply improve the environment by building all over the green belt. Now, what I say is something very different. Why don't we make the green belt green? What really matters with environmental assets, natural capital, woodland, uh, countryside, wildlife, is that people can enjoy it. So the right place to have the green is right next to people. That's what the green belt does. So if you look at my city, Oxford, and you look look out to the east, why isn't that a green area, accessible to the public of Oxford to go out there for the kids to play? Why haven't we got access? Why don't we mandate that access should be provided? So instead of comparing what is brown-green with houses, why don't we compare houses with brown-green and green-green, and then work out where and where, when we should build the houses and when we should really give economic growth potential to people by enhancing their lives
0: and improving the benefits that flow. I'd like to talk a little bit about tourism, because an area of natural beauty obviously draws people in, and uh, sometimes, you know, really a lot of people all ending up in one place. You know, the footfall needs infrastructure... Clearly there are economic benefits here, but I wonder if it's possible to create sustainable tourism on a large scale.
1: Okay, so tourism is worth about a hundred billion a year in Britain. Farming is worth nine billion. So this is a really serious industry and as we do Brexit, uh, as sterling falls over time, uh, staycations and staying at home is going to become more popular and what's more more people are going to come here because if you're a foreigner, this is going to be a cheap holiday. And, you know, if you throw in a bit of climate change, it's not so bad, the weather. Um, so you can see this is going to boom, OK? So the first thing to say is, and, of course, not all tourism is the countryside, a lot of it's the city, et cetera, but the first thing to say is, isn't it great that all these people are on the beaches of Cornwall and enjoying open air, the kids are out there running around having fun? OK, it's crowded, but this is a good thing. This isn't bad. This is people outside. Now, of course, too many people risk damaging the natural environment you're trying to preserve and they affect other people. You know, you probably don't want to go on holiday with thousands of people on the beach. You want that idyllic picture of the sand, uh, the beach and just you and your bare feet walking over the sand or whatever. That's what we all want, right? So we've got a trade-off here. So I think we should think positively about making tourism contribute to protecting the natural environment, which, if overdone, they could cause damage to. So if you go to Swiss villages, you'll pay a tourist tax, a bedroom tax, if you stay overnight in an area, and that is spent on the local infrastructure and the local facilities. What about, you know, those thousands of people going to Cornwall, giving a pound each which is used on a local community group with the school, cleaning up the beach, doing something about plastic and helping fishermen not to use nets in particular ways that do damage. You know, we just have to be creative about this. But to say, you know, tourism's bad, this is all part of this idea that what we want to do is get, get rid of people and nature will be all right. What we want to do is create nature for people... And we want to sustain and enhance that nature. And we want to get people to use that nature in a responsible way, which gets those best benefits. But, you know, let's triumph the fact that all these people are outside
0: in the bank holiday that's gone this year when it's been sunny. Isn't that wonderful? I want to bring up, actually, a, a project that I you've been involved in. And it's one that I hadn't heard of before. Uh, rather than... Tens of thousands of people all going to Cornwall to try and find the beach that Paul Dark was filmed on. There's a project for a path to go around all of England's coasts and it's due to be completed next year. I think it's 2,795 miles. It sounds incredible. Tell me about it. Well, it's perfectly straightforward. It's going to happen
1: we're actually going to be able to walk round the whole of england not scotland and if you think about scottish coast that's pretty difficult to mm. do okay mm-hmm. but this is a fantastic thing we've had the great uh, long distance paths created decades ago southwest uh, coastal path is fantastically used and and people get huge personal satisfaction out of walking bits of it and some people you know devote months weeks to, you know, fulfilling their life's ambition to do this thing. So this is great, and we can do it all the way around. But, you know, we could be even better than this. So if you could walk all the way around Britain, wouldn't it be good if, you know, the 20 metres uh, to the landward side was actually green? It's not usually great agricultural land, and anyway, you don't want the runoff going into the sea. It's usually rough. Well, why don't we think about that as a, as a green belt of 20 meters deep around as much of the coast of Britain we can do it wouldn't cost very much okay and then look at the beach side if all these people are getting this access you know we can clean this up it doesn't have to be full of plastic and garbage and rubbish we can make this a better place but we have to educate people a beach has seaweed on it it has its own biodiversity Get the kids out there in the rock pools. Get them to see what's really there and what they can enjoy. So let's think about this as one of the great assets of the first half of this century that we in Britain can create and think of the welfare and health and mental benefits. Think of what this is for our kids and then just add the tourist benefit on top and you can see the economic logic just
0: stacks up. We just need the imagination to do it. It's been fascinating discussing all the options that we've got. I suppose the big question is, how do we make it happen? How do we make those key ideas come into fruition? Here's where I am a cold-hearted, rational
1: economist. Okay? This has to make economic sense, because my bottom line is, whether we like it or not, However much spiritual and other value we get from the environment, if it doesn't make economic sense, the lesson from the last hundred years is it's not going to happen. So we have to be cold, hard, rational and economic about this. So my starting point is, is it the case that stopping the rot and doing these environmental enhancements are positive economic projects which stand next to investing in, you know, anything from HS2 to a runway to uh, the local business developing its uh, next factory? And the answer is overwhelmingly yes. And we have to be hard about this. We can't do everything. So we should go for the projects which have the biggest bucks quickest. And clean air is clearly high up that agenda.
0: That's what we're doing. And we should go for the projects which are cheapest first. Just tell me, though, I'm sorry, sorry to bust yeah. in here, but just tell me, how do you justify on cold, hard economic terms why clean air is better for people? Is it the health benefits? Well, there are lots of different benefits. Okay? I mean, obviously, okay. obviously, we all want okay. clean air. Okay. And but we, in terms of, in right. ju- just in terms but, of but, the kind but, of hard look, economic okay, benefits. Okay.
1: So, so we have to start to do the economics with the science. Mm-hmm. So, what is the consequence of dirty air to physical health? and to mental health. Then we take a look at how much we spend on those things now. And, you know, you don't have to spend very long with your local GP or your local health service manager to find out how much they're spending now trying to handle what is almost a mental health epidemic, let alone the obesity that comes from the lack of exercise, etc. We all know this. So these are calculable numbers. So the question is, could we... Let's put it really crudely: Could we save a few bucks... Could we make actually public expenditure lower if we did this compared with where it is now? And the answer is yes. So that, that's the first part of it. Then you start thinking about the enhancements going forward and you think about these projects and think what the returns are. So I'll give you another example. Around Oxford, we're having a concrete canal built to prevent flooding for Oxford. OK, now, one of the things I do is I'm a vice president of a wildlife trust. I'm very proud of that. Berkshire and Buckinghamshire Wildlife Trust. We own land upstream from Oxford. Now, this concrete canal cost well over £100 million. Nobody said to us, how much would it cost you to do things with the land upstream which would prevent the risk of flooding equal to what the concrete would do? And by the way, what are all the other benefits you would have? Nobody said to us, how much money do you want to flood the farm we've just bought for our wildlife trust, or we bought actually a decade ago, uh, and hold the water for longer? And it turns out that planting trees, holding the water in the Upper Thames, has fabulous benefits for curlew, for all sorts of wading birds, uh, They insects, the biodiversity, the access to the waterways, the tree planting, the carbon sequestration. Oh, by the way, we help to reduce the floods as well. That's a classic bit of solid economics. Well, we should just do that.
0: So there should be a lot more joined up thinking that clearly there isn't at the moment. Absolutely. And just use markets.
1: You know, ask us to bid. Ask us to bid against the Environment Agency to do this job. Now, it may turn out that the economics still say build the canal. OK, I'm not arguing this particular case was got wrong, but you can see the scope here. You know, there are water companies who auction to farmers, how much do you want to be paid to plant a cover crop in the winter to stop the nitrates runoff and to hold back the carbon? Paul Harbour is being protected by just such an auction uh, by a business called Entrade. Um, these are new opportunities. This is not kind of, you know, people wearing uh, a green sackcloth. This is business people going out and saying, you know what, we can make a profit out of this because this is economically more efficient than to do otherwise. Why isn't the health service subsidising air quality improvement rather than having to spend all the money on ventilators and all the things that go with it? So lots of practical details, lots of nitty-gritty, but we have to set the frame within which to do that. If you subsidise the farmers to do the wrong thing, it's not their fault, they will do the wrong thing and then we'll just waste money paying to clean up the mess.
0: The idea of the kind of polluter pays principle that we have rolling out at the moment, particularly thinking things like uh, diesel cars in London, is that something that can be rolled out further? Is it something you think should be? For the polluter not to pay is really economically inefficient. If you
1: go and buy something in the shops, you expect to pay the cost that it costs to produce that. If you go and buy an iPhone, if I say to you, you must pay for the manufacture of that iPhone, you'd have no difficulty with that. So if when you're having your iPhone or whatever produced, it causes carbon pollution, why shouldn't you pay for that? And I can tell you as an economist as a theorist, you know, a, an efficient economy is one where all the costs are internalized. We pay the full cost. So the polluter pays principle is nothing other than 101 sound economics. Full stop. Okay? Now what we've got is a world in which we pay the polluters in farming. We pay them to pollute. This is nuts. Right? And so this is a good economic principle. You have to do it gradually. You have to get acceptance to do this. But the net result will be we'll all be better off because our economy will
0: be more efficient and therefore our economic growth will be higher. You also suggest designing a nature fund. Tell me a little bit about how that would happen and who would govern it and, and how you imagine the money would be spent. OK,
1: so there are two or three revenue sources for this. So if we make polluters pay, like carbon taxes... You know, the question is what we're going to spend the carbon taxes on. So that, that's one source. Pluta pays goes into the fund. Another source is just the depletion of resources, which uh, natural resources, but we can't renew. So we use up all this oil and gas, limestone, minerals, etc. My generation's had a picnic. We spent the whole damn lot from the North Sea. We've left absolutely nothing for the kids. Right? In Norway, they have a proper fund. So I'm saying if you're depleting non-renewable natural resources like oil, gas, etc., not only should you pay for the pollution costs, but you should set aside some of the money so that because the future generations don't have those things, they're compensated. And then finally we have this idea of net environmental gain, which is if you build a development, you build houses and you damage the environment, and let's face it, we're going to do a lot of damage with all these houses and infrastructure, etc., you should pay compensation you should put money aside so that somewhere else we can make the environment better it's not the same environment it's not necessarily perfect but you know if you're going to do this let's have some payoff you know the 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 crossrail All the mud is being used to create this fantastic wetland in the Essex marshes. It's just fabulous. Wallenzea Island is just this huge new natural reserve. So I think these revenues should not be just dissipated in lots of different bits, but we should corral them together into fund and say, you know, what we're trying to do in the next 25 years is enhance the natural environment. We need the money to do that. The way to raise that money is not to go and have lots of new taxes. It's just to do the efficient things and then we should use that fund uh, to enhance our natural reserves and therefore leave the next generation with a proper and fair deal and not, to be blunt, a kind of crap environment that we've despoiled for them.
0: Finally, when you look at education and the coming generation, do you think that we have really failed by not putting nature and the environment right at the heart of the national curriculum? We surely need to educate everybody so that these aren't ideas that are, are coming from, from experts and academics, but they're something that we've all learned about. Uh, and at one level, um, it's not as bad as people say. If you take climate
1: change, I mean, when I'm teaching the university, they're obsessed by it. Okay? That's a transformation in my lifetime. OK, and um, it's very hard to argue that young people aren't aware of the issues. They might have the most utopian and naive ideas about what to do about it. But I don't think there's any problem there. When it comes to biodiversity, most young people absorb these things not in the classroom by watching a David Attenborough film if they do. 17 million people watch the Planet Earth too, I think. Okay? But, you know, it's much more basic than that. If you look at our obesity problems, you know, kids don't know how to cook. They basically do not know what it is that's in the food they eat. And it's no wonder. They have no idea what they're consuming, Okay, They don't have any feel for nature. So I'm in favour of going back a bit. And it's not just teaching nature for the sake of nature. Get the kids out there. You know, one of the things we're exploring at the moment is a new national census like the Doomsday Book. You know, it was done in the 30s. Get every school kid out there participating. You know, in the Wildlife Trust, we try really hard to get kids out of the city. And they love it if you give them something practical to do. If you go and show a kid a microscope and show them what a flower looks like or what a cricket looks like, you know, a five-year-old kid, they come away in absolute wonder. So this isn't hard... It does need doing. We do need to reconnect the 80% of our urban population with our countryside and our environment. But we can do this, and the cost is trivial, and the cost of not
0: doing it is very large. So it can be done. There are a lot of doomsday scenarios about the environment and about climate change, particularly at the moment. You seem to have a lot more optimism than some. This is crackable. This is perfectly doable. Climate change is solvable,
1: not with existing technologies, not by going to zero, net zero by 225 and closing down the economy. It's solvable by, you know, opening up the light spectrum. It's solvable by developing solar film. There's huge technical advance. Every university lab is full of people coming up with new technologies. And when it comes to our natural environment, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. We are not condemned to this. We won't get back to the 1930s. We won't get back to... Wordsworth's Lake District, but, you know, we, we're doing so badly at such high cost. I mean, how could we not do it better? Why would we be so stupid to allow this degradation to go on to our own personal detriment? So I want to get the environmentalists signed up with, you know, those people interested in how our prosperity is going to grow. And that's
0: why my book's called Green and Prosperous Land, not just Green and Pleasant Land. Dieter Helm, thank you very much indeed. Fascinating to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. The Rathbones Look Forward series with Andrea Catherwood.